Welcome to the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by my panel of former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. We are recording this on August 22nd. We are kind of in the political doldrums season. This is the time where Congress is out of session, the president is on vacation, and political analysts kind of hunker down and take stock of where things are going. If you're working in a campaign right now, it's not like you're not busy. You're busy because as we record, this is only 77 days to go until the midterm elections, but you're sort of gearing up for the final push. You're just not quite there yet. And it is in that spirit that we're going to look at a whole raft of stories that came out in the last few days that are kind of trying to get their finger on the pulse of where the midterm elections are going, where we stand, and what the next 77 days are going to look like. I want to start with an article from Amy Walter in the Cook Political Report. This is an outfit that does political prognostication. They rate how races are going to go. They, they're, they're, this outfit, Charlie Cook, they're one of the top race raters out there. Amy Walter is a veteran political analyst, and she just wrote an article titled Vibe Shift. And she starts it off by saying, after months of, quote, Democrats are doomed chatter, there's been a definite shift in mood and momentum toward the party in power. Republicans are openly fretting about their flawed and underfunded Senate candidates. We're going to get to that in a second. While Democrats, who not long ago were bemoaning fumbles by the White House and Democratic leadership in Congress, are now sharing dark Brandon memes and polling data showing Democrats ahead in key Senate contests. But is all of this just a vibe shift or has there been real movement toward Democrats? Former U.S. Congressman and noted Democrat Paul Hodes, what's your sense of it as you look at all of the information out there? Is this just a vibe shift? Is this kind of Democrats feeling a little bit better? Or are you seeing evidence of real movement toward Democrats? Uh, there is something happening. There's something happening here, but it is exactly clear. But you know what the next it, line of that song is, so that's not yeah, great yeah. in today's no, I know. I'm, I left off that next line. Yeah, right. Um, Very intentional. For what it's worth, I left it off. Okay. So I intentionally left it off. So there is something happening here, but it it's not necessarily the be-all and end-all that Democrats really are hoping for, because the there is a vibe shift. It is it is national. It's happening everywhere, and it's there has been look what pe people vote on their pocketbook. They still vote on their pocketbook for all the Democrats would are are hoping, and we're seeing some movement because of the abortion issue in the Supreme Court, because of Donald Trump's troubles. There is there is some some movement, but ultimately people vote on their pocketbooks. And while the economy is getting better. If you if you talk to people, it's still and 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 I'm sure Alicia would remind us groceries cost a lot more than they did last summer. And that it weighs things down for Democrats. On the other hand, what's going on is that the Republicans are so awful. There's so much bad news for Republicans. Their candidates are so bad, and Trump is so evil, and he's in such trouble, and all his people are in such trouble. And most Americans want to find out just how bad he is because they thought they knew how bad he is, but he's so much worse that things, it, it there is some movement towards Democrats because it's moving away from Republicans. Will it That's be enough? 
hard to say. So it's what you're picking up. And by the way, there is some evidence around this in this Amy Walter article that I commend to people. It's worth it's worth checking out. And what you're saying is it isn't so much that people are warming to Democrats is that they're cooling to the Trump insanity. Alicia, I'm going to press you later in the show on just how much you have your finger on the pulse of Republican feelings and how much their heart rates have quickened recently. But do you agree with that? Is Are you are you feeling a vibe shift and more important from your sources throughout Republican world? Is there a sense that the tide is turning and it's real or it's just, yeah, Democrats are, are kidding themselves. They're, they're feeling better just because things aren't as awful. There's certainly concern within Republican orbits of a tide change. And, and for the most part, I agree with the analysis of that Paul provided. I mean, look, we've got a divided Republican Party. There was a fascinating poll. It was on ABC out this weekend, and it showed it asked Republicans, do you identify as a Trump supporter or as a Republican? And it was split like 50-50. It was fascinating. Actually, I thought the Trump number would have been higher. It was like, it was actually like 50-47 or something. But that's the problem we're facing. So now as primaries are getting completed across the country, you're seeing a lot of candidates who have become more the Trump supporter than the quote unquote Republican supporter. And therefore you've got to divide. And can those people win in certain states? Look in Wyoming, the Republicans going to win because it's Wyoming and she won. She beat Liz Cheney as a huge Trump advocate. And she's going to win because any Republican is going to win that seat. But that's not the same in other states. And in the article you referenced, since Mar-a-Lago happened, candidates feel forced, and it is a difficult balance. I actually sympathize with it. Candidates feel forced to be out there stumping in defense and support of Donald Trump. And here's a, a from the article you referenced, quote, they're focused on what ignites right-wing social media and what pleases the former president, not on what matters to the American people. That's what I've been complaining about with you guys for months that Democrats have been doing. And it's mm. true. We, we are facing the grocery bill issue. We are looking at the heat bill coming up in a couple months here. We are worried about all that. And now it's the Republicans who have stopped focusing on it because they're feeling pressured to campaign on the I am the bigger MAGA supporter. And that's not what most of us are focused on. And when you live in a purple state or a state that's a little more moderate, not heavily red, you're going to find out that Republicans aren't going to do as well, particularly in U.S. Senate seats, if this continues. That's really interesting. It, it, one of the weird dynamics that you run into from my perspective as a, as a former staffer is the disconnect between the way staffers perceive the news and the way elected officials perceive the news. We have a former elected official sitting next to us virtually on this panel. And I can assure you, Paul, just, just tell me if you disagree with anything I'm about to say here. If you're a member of Congress, if you're elected to office, you think that anytime your name appears in print or on TV or someone utters it out loud on the airwaves, you think everyone who might vote for you heard it and retains what was just said. Any piece of good news, you think they've locked it in. Any piece of bad news, you think they've pinned it up on their refrigerator. The, 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 hyper, the hyperactive emotional attachment to what is to what appears in print for a candidate is real. It's it, real, right? It's, it's a real. real thing. Yeah, it but, happens. All It happens. But we know from psychological research that you actually need to repeat messages. It used to be sort of the, the guidepost if you were running TV ads is you need a repetition of 15 to 18 times before the very basic idea in your ad began to sink in. Repetition is so important. And nowadays, 
when the earned media news environment is more important, but more fractured than ever before, the, the ability to get repetition, to get a vibe in the news is harder and harder and harder. And so I'm just struck in kind of looking at the numbers here about two things. One is it's really important what the news is focusing on. And I think one of the insights that Donald Trump had is nowadays on social media, it's more important to be trending than to have good things written about you. He figured that out a long time ago. He just wanted to dominate the coverage because if they're talking about you, people's minds are on you. And so what we've seen the last two months is the news coverage has increasingly been about what? Bad things involving Republican extremism. It's been about the Dobbs decision. It's been about the FBI search and it's been about January 6th. And so what you see in the polling that Paul referenced a couple of minutes ago is it's not so much that people are saying to pollsters, Democrats are focused on the right things. It's that increasingly you see a 12 point shift in the last two months in people saying Republicans are focused on the wrong things because there's been so much news coverage that's negative, that's about kind of the extremes of the Republican Party. The other thing that you do see some evidence in, in polling is a shift of about three points on the generic congressional ballot toward Democrats in the last two months since June 22nd. It's it's 2.7, 2.8 points, so about three points. You see about the same shift in positive approval rating for the president. So you might say to that, well, what's what's three points? Three points doesn't seem like a lot. Well, it's a little bit like if you have a nine foot flood and you have a 10 foot flood wall, well, foot matters a lot at that point. If you have an 11 foot flood, you're, you're, you're wet. And so I think three points when you're talking about very close races, very close house congressional races on the margin is a big deal. And that's, that's sort of what we see. It may not be enough to turn this into advantage Democrats, but it's enough to put a little bit of oomph behind this idea that Democrats have momentum on their side. Oh, sorry, Alicia, you were just giving me the the nod like you wanted to like you wanted to jump in there. <laughs> yeah, well, you, I, I'm just going to jump in and say yes, that's what's in the news, but it's in the news because it's real. There's all kinds of the of the the, the media has finally picked up on just how bad things are for Republicans. You've got Trump, you've got Giuliani under attack. You've got, I mean. And you've got these candidates out there, these candidates and Alicia can can talk about the clown show in New Hampshire that that the Republican candidates represent. I mean, it's 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 pretty absurd when you think about it. I mean, and I'm, I'm sure we'll t touch on it later in the show. It's so bad that even Mitch McConnell is moaning about his candidate. So so the Republicans are in some deep kimchi. Now, it's it may not be enough to save Democrats, but it sure is kind of kind of pleasurable as a Democrat to be able to point the finger and say, those guys? Okay. And isn't there some politician who was fond of saying, don't compare me to the almighty, to the almighty compare, compare me compare to the me alternative? The alternative. The, yeah. there, I, I, there is somebody who, who said that. And uh, I think- it You may, know that it, Joe Biden was cribbing that from someone else though. Of course. Of <laughs> course. Everybody cribs everything. That I mean, is I, sort of his move. Yeah. We all well, plagiarize everything, but, but all right, it's well, kind of true. Let's bring in a little bit more evidence on this because there was the big discussion 
this morning, again, we're recording this Monday morning. Who knows? The big discussion will be something else by this afternoon. But it's been around this NBC News poll that came out Sunday morning. And Politico's lead on it was, they, they call it the shifting center of attention. It's been a long time, months, question mark, years, question mark, since we've seen National Democrats in such a good mood about their electoral chances over the last few weeks amid a spate of legislative movement, falling gas prices, stumbling Republican Senate candidates and a sense of growing backlash to efforts to restrict abortion. The fight for control of Congress seems to have tightened. Gone are the days when pundits confidently predicted a red tsunami. So their point about this NBC News poll was that there are, there are two big factors to keep an eye on. One is that Democrats have closed the enthusiasm gap with Republicans. According to that particular poll, 68% of Republicans express a high level of interest in the upcoming elections versus 66% for Democrats. That's a two-point Republican advantage, but that's down from 17 points in March. So that's that's a big shift and something that pollsters were were saying, look, this is this is a big difference when you're talking about a midterm election. That's one of the reasons that we have this classic midterm pattern that favors Republicans. The other thing going on, and this was this was eye-opening for me, is that voters ranked threats to democracy as the more important issue than cost of living. Now, Paul, I know you said a moment ago that people still vote on their pocketbooks, and maybe they do. Maybe this is just something that people tell pollsters. They say that it's more important, voters are saying it's more important to them, everything they're hearing in that repetition in the news about threats to democracy than prices. And that would be advantage to Democrats, right, Alicia? It would, it would, Not necessarily. I mean, think of it. Threats to democracy is very generic. A lot of Republicans, as many as 50 to 70 percent, depending on which poll, feel that the 2020 election was somehow, if not completely fraudulent, was mm. somehow not valid. And 100 percent of Democrats are concerned about the Trump wing of the Republican Party's threat to democracy. So I actually don't think that that number says a lot because it's something that can capture literally both sides. You know, Alicia is a lot smarter than I am. So I, when, when she says things like that, I kind of, I, 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 I put away my salt shaker and I say, mm, well, that's interesting. Maybe she's right, but come on, Alicia. I mean, we got January 6th. We've got the January 6th committee. We've got the former president taking nuclear secrets. We've got the Saudis waiting to buy the nuclear secrets. And I can't help but think that the phrase threats to democracy don't really attach to the MAGA Republicans and, and their wacky ideas. Threats to democracy is all about insurrection, coups, conspiracy, and January 6th. And the interesting thing to me is, I, I guess I was always, I've always been fond of saying, well, how bad does it have to get? before Americans pay attention to something that's more important than the price of eggs. Not that the price of eggs isn't important. Not that a loaf of bread and a gallon of milk and their costs isn't really important to people. But maybe, just maybe, something has sunk in that is really deep and really important. And that all of the January 6th hearings and the insurrection and all of that has finally become an issue at a deeper level where people say, this has gone too far. This is crazy time. And, and we're really worried about the state of our democracy. Now, as pundits and now talking heads, we talk about, we've been talking about it all the time. 
But maybe, just maybe, the American electorate is catching up. Paul, I kind of wish now, well, for multiple reasons, I kind of have always wished that you had been elected to the U.S. Senate. But now I, I'm I'm really kind of wishing it because that was a great filibuster you just had there. And it shows that you could have done that very effectively in the Senate. I appreciated it because I was trying to use that time to look deep into the cross tabs. If you've ever read up on a poll, you can look deep inside the poll and figure out for any answer who particularly answered which way. And I, I was going to try to evaluate Alicia's point here from a moment ago of maybe it's Republicans saying threats to democracy are on their minds to the same extent that Democrats are. But I haven't been able to locate that in the crosstab. So I will make that my homework for next time. I'm going to look into the crosstabs of the NBC News poll and try and uncover who is most worried about threats to democracy and whether it really is Democrats or whether it's equally Democrats and Republicans. I, I, I guess what I guess what I would say ultimately is it just seems significant to me. It's a, it's another proof point to the idea of maybe this is maybe this is just one of those polling effects. But longtime listeners know that I'm as skeptical as anyone when it comes to polling and especially public opinion research, the kinds of public polls that we evaluate on this show, not the insider campaign polls that campaign managers use to make spending decisions. I, I think a lot of these questions, it's kind of people say back to pollsters, all, there's all kinds of weird effects. I'm not sure that I buy an answer like this, that really people, if you say you're really, you're really more worried about threats to democracy than the price of gas. But the very fact that that kind of an answer can float toward the top. I guess it does connect to two things. One, the price of gas has fallen substantially, substantially. It's it's down in the last two months, 75 cents. And so I think a lot of what we're picking up in the analysis right now of a vibe shift is the sense it's not where we are today. It's skating to where the puck is going. It's where might we be when in 77 days we hit the midterms or in 60 days or so when early voting sets in and people are, are mailing in ballots. If we continue to see falling gas prices at the same rate that we've seen them for the last two months, then in two months from now, they will be at about $3.20. That's significant because that's where they were a year ago when we began to see the onset of the price increases. Things will be back down to basically normal. Same thing with food price increases. If we continue to see falls like we've seen recently, it, it's where we will be when people are casting their votes. And so the big question to me is, is the cake kind of baked already for people in terms of inflation is is still something that they're going to blame on the Democrats is still recent and painful? Or will some late relief change people's minds and help Democrats ultimately on election day? Mitch McConnell actually lowered expectations at the end of last week. He went on the record and said, yeah, I'm not so sure anymore that I'm going to end up being the majority leader after the election. And you know, we, we have Republicans on the record saying it's the quality of Senate candidates that's really the problem. As a matter of fact, one of the top Republican pollsters in the country, Witt Ayers, said that on the record. And I'm mentioning that because he's going to be our guest on Beyond Politics later this week. So I hope people have subscribed to Beyond Politics because we are going to get 
that kind of insight from a very tip-top Republican pollster. Alicia, let me turn to you because it, this, this one of the places that people point to, national analysts, is New Hampshire. The concern that came out of, we had Neil Levesque on the show last week. He's the executive director of the St. Anselm's Institute of Politics. They run this highly regarded poll that found last week that 32% of Republican primary voters are leaning toward Don Bolduc as their Republican Senate nominee to take on Senator Maggie Hassan this fall. He is that made national headlines because he's widely viewed as perhaps the weakest candidate. And that set off a whole bunch of kind of quiet recriminations among Republicans about here we go again. We're going to put forward our weakest foot and we may give away a very winnable Senate race. What are you picking up? What's what's sort of the, the insider vibe? And just for all of our listeners, be aware that Alicia really does know what she's talking about. You moderated a, a Republican Senate debate recently. What are you hearing? When that poll came out, and it is a highly regarded poll, there was a little bit of concern in the Republican electorate. General Don Bolduck is very much a Trump supporter. All of the candidates in the field are, but he's kind of been out there the most. And before I kind of poop all over him, I want to say this guy is the real deal. He served his country as a career. He served in Afghanistan. He was a bad butt. We're talking this is the guy that was riding the horses into takeover provinces. They made movies about it. And nothing should take away from that level of service to us. That being said, as a political candidate, he's off the mark. He's been off the mark. He is a conspiracy theorist. Governor Chris Sununu, a Republican who holds over a 60% approval rating in a purple state, said last week that Don Bolduck is not a serious candidate. He's kind of a conspiracy theorist, and he is. The problem is Don Bolduck is appealing to a big sector of the Republican Party, but won't win a general election. The largest political party in the state of New Hampshire is not a political party. It is those who are unregistered with either one. And so there is concern among Republicans in New Hampshire that if General Bolduck gets the nomination, he would have a very difficult time beating incumbent Senator Maggie Hassan. In second place, 16 points is the current Senate president, Chuck Morse, and he has not been getting his footing yet. That being said, the biggest part of that poll is we're only a few weeks out from the primary and 42% of Republicans are undecided. So now the conversation is how to shift and give a boost to the next most viable, which would be Chuck Morse. Are I Republicans going to do anything about it? Well, that's what we're waiting to see. I mean, this poll is relatively new and, and political people aren't as quick on their feet as they should be sometimes at making these decisions. But I've been told by someone who is high ranking in the Republican Party in New Hampshire that Governor Chris Sununu is seriously considering giving his endorsement to Senate President Chuck Morse. If that happens, that will be a big deal. And again, it'll be a big deal because this is a governor who has is at the lowest point of his governorship with 60% right now. And he is very popular among Republicans, moderate Democrats and independents. And that could give Chuck Morris the boost he needs because again, 42% are undecided. And let's not forget, there's another factor here. That is the Trump factor. Everybody in this race is a supporter of Donald Trump. Donald Bolduck has probably been the most vocal since the very beginning. However, Corey Lewandowski, former campaign manager to Donald Trump, still connected senior advisor, said just last week in New Hampshire that he predicts Donald Trump is going to endorse in that primary and it will not be for General Bolduck. So all these shifting things could have a huge impact on what happens in that race. But if we do what other states have done, and that is and what we're unfortunately, hopefully not going to be considering in one of our congressional races in the primary in New Hampshire, is nominate that far MAGA 
Donald Trump focused, not economy focused candidate, we're going to lose. We're going to lose places we shouldn't. So just to read that back to you, what you're suggesting (laughs) could be happening upcoming. The thing to keep an eye on here is sort of a pincher movement from the moderate and from the MAGA right portions of the Republican Party. You could see both moderate Republican Governor Chris Sununu endorse and Donald Trump himself endorse a candidate and kind of give that push from each end of the Republican Party. Well, and I have I have no indication as to which candidate other than Bolduck Donald Trump would endorse. I just I mean, it could be Chuck Morris. It could be Kevin Smith, who's very supportive of the former president. So I don't know. I mean, if they both were to endorse Don Chuck Morris. Yeah. I mean, I think you're going to be able to move that 42 percent into the pocket of Chuck Morris's candidacy. If if they were to coalesce, if they were to coalesce. But they're not friends. Trump and Sununu aren't exactly buddies. Let's not forget that. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's true. I, my, my vote is for everybody to to just be very cautious about this. I'm really hoping that neither Trump nor Sununu weighs in. That would be politically disastrous for both of them. I really I'm I'm all in for Don Bolduc as the as the Senate candidate. I really am. I'm throwing all my chips on the table in favor of Bolduc. I'm betting big. It's it's time to bet bigger. Go home. And for me. Bolduc is the bold choice for Republicans. <laughs> Please vote for Don Bolduc if you're a Republican. We want him to be the candidate with all his all right, military Paul, Wait, service. hold on, hold on. Can I stop you there? Can I stop you there? Because you know what you're doing? You know what you're doing? I'm doing Look, exactly what the Democrats have been doing, doing all over the, the country. You're doing it in a slightly different way. So what, the D- what, what Paul is doing, this is a very meta joke that Paul is making here. Tell me, tell me if I'm not getting your vibe quite right, but what Democrats have been doing is they've been coming into Republican Senate primaries and running ads, except that the way they've been doing it, they've been trying to put their thumb on the scale for who they think is the most beatable candidate. But the way they've been doing it is they've been running ads to try and actually help the most MAGA candidate by saying, oh boy, Don Baldick, he's just too much of a conservative. He's just too strong a supporter of Donald Trump. He's just he's he's too awesome, you know, like and that's that's kind of what you're saying there. It is. He is just too awesome. He is too awesome. He is he is too much with the big guy. He yeah, he's just too much. Well, I'll tell you, you know, there's been a lot of criticism within Democrats circles, <laughs> circles, Republic. Alicia is in in Republican circles. We're in Democratic circles. And there has been some some hand wringing about this idea of, wait a second, you know, the last time we saw this movie of, oh, we want the most Trumpian candidates possible because they're the most beatable. It was 2016 when we thought that Donna, I, I, a very smart political analyst I know, I remember was having a conversation with me. Oh, I hope Trump wins the primary. He's the most beatable. It'll be great. We'll have President Hillary Clinton. Well, I don't like the way that turned out. And Democrats uh-huh. are saying a version of the same thing. Like, hold on a second here. What if we get our wish? That being said, does that, that's actually a great connection to another angle that I wanted to check in on, because there's not only been concern from Mitch McConnell, of all people, about the quality of Republican candidates, there's also been concern about Republicans' ad strategy. There was a big story. I'm going to, again, go to the political version of this. No, I'm sorry. This is the Washington Post version of it. Washington Post writes, Republican Senate hopefuls are getting crushed on airways across the country while their national campaign fund 
He's pulling ads and running low on cash, leading some campaign advisors to ask where all the money went and to demand an audit of the committee's finances, according to Republican strategists involved in the discussions. And they go on to point out that in a highly unusual move, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, that's just the arm of the Republican National Party that funds Senate races, canceled bookings worth about $10 million, including in the critical races in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona. Now, I, I want to turn to you, Alicia, as, as a veteran campaign consultant in just a moment. I can't believe I'm about to say this. But I'm going to, you know, the Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil. I'm about oh, to yeah. do Sympathy for the NRSC <laughs> because their proffered explanation is they're not abandoning those races. What they're doing is they're pulling back on ads that they would have funded from a campaign committee from the National Party. They're, they're pulling back on those ad buys instead because they're going to prioritize ads that the campaigns can run that get lower rates. So they're, they're doing this as a tactical move to save money. I just want to say that that's actually plausible to me. I have been on the wrong end of national media stories on this very topic before, because there is a kind of ad, this is way in the weeds, this is way in the weeds, but there's a kind of ad that you can run called a hybrid ad. It's, it's kind of a dirty little secret of politics that if you're a campaign, if you're Paul Hodes for county commissioner or whatever, you or Senate, <laughs> US Senate, your campaign by law gets the lowest possible ad rates on TV. The rates that committees pay or that outside groups pay, like the National Coalition, there are all these groups. You'll see ads by like groups with shadowy names or by the National Republican Senate Committee. Those groups pay up to two times more for ads. So you can actually get more ads on the air if you're a campaign than if the national party is funding ads. And there's a kind of ad called a hybrid ad where you split your ad 50-50 between the campaign and the national committee. And it's basically a way of getting the most money, the most firepower into ads. I ran as a campaign manager in 2012 for, for a house race. I ran a whole bunch of, of house ads, of hybrid ads using this, this kind of a mechanism. And there was a big pullback of national party money that had been dedicated to our race. And I got a whole bunch of stories saying, well, they're, they're waving the white flag. They're giving up on this race because of that pullback. It wasn't true. It was just repurposing how we were doing the money to get the most bang for our buck. So that's my pitch. It could be that what the National Republican Senate Committee is saying here is true. Alicia Preston, what do you make of this pullback of money? Is their explanation maybe true or are they kind of screwing the pooch here? I think it's probably a hybrid of many different things. I, look, that is a very legitimate, realistic reason to pull that money back. If they don't have as much money coming in as they thought they would, they're going to be more judicious with it. That's part of it. I also looked at this report in a little more, and this is something, I mean, the Democratic Party probably does the exact same thing, but it drives me crazy. And this is that if you look at what they're spending money on, 
So you have to do this balance. When you're a Republican organization, whether it's the Congressional Committee, Senatorial Committee, the RNC, you have this balance where you need to promote candidates in the districts that you think you can win and help them in whatever way possible to get their name ID out there and their message out there. But then there's this whole other part of what they spend their money on, which is improved technology, data collection to help them in elections down the road. And that's fine and dandy. But I mean, I've had discussions very recently with someone in the Republican Party in one state about this, that too much effort is being, they're using candidates to data collect for future races and not focusing on candidates themselves. And it's very frustrating when you work on a campaign because your job is one candidate and their job is the future of the mechanisms of the of the body of the party. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. And I think they're not bringing in as much money as they thought they would. When you make these buys, right, you make a month's out and you hold the airtime. That's on a projection of the amount of money you're getting, you will be getting based on what you're getting now. You make a budget just like anyone does, and you expect you're going to have the money. The reality is, look, Donald Trump, before the Mar-a-Lago raid, was raking in 200K a day. In the days after Mar-a-Lago, he's pulling in a million dollars a day. And then it settled at $300 a day. That is money that in any other scenario would be going either to Republican organizations or Republican candidates. There's not an unlimited mass of money out there that Republicans are giving. So they're choosing where to give it. And as Donald Trump is making that level of money, that is coming directly out of all these other places. And so I think they probably won't know the numbers yet for July and August, but we will before the election. And I think what we're going to see is that that has had fundraising impact on these organizations that want to assist in various states. So now, Paul, you've been on the other end of this, right? Because you've been the candidate who's kind of waiting for the phone to ring. You're like, by the receiver. It's like, is the National (laughs) Party going to put some money into my race? And you've been on the good end and the not so good end. So look, I spent a lot of my August in the year that I lost my Senate race begging Harry Reid to spend some money on my race. And what I got was zip, zero, nada, nothing. I eventually got a little dribble of money from, I don't know, the Democratic Governors Association, even though I was running for the U.S. Senate. Nobody would invest in my race because it was August and they were reading the polls. They they could see they could see in their tea leaves which way this is going. So all the blather from Republican pundits and talking heads and even the uh, the RNC about why they're doing what they're doing, I call, I call, I call foul because- call shenan- Because it becomes a self- Shenanigans. It's right. not true. They're cutting their losses. They're decide- they're, they're reading the tea leaves and they're abandoning their bad candidates, people. They're abandoning them. They're leaving them high and dry on the <laughs> island. Okay, I think Paul's going a little too far, a little too far. <laughs> I, I think I think the answer is partly what Paul is saying, and it's partly what Alicia is saying. It's kind of this, it's a little bit of, of several things. The reason that Republicans are wringing their hands about this is that the earlier you make an ad buy, the lower the rates that you have to pay. And so when you abandon these reservations that you made a long time ago, if you come back in and 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 you want to run ads, you're going to pay more, which means you get fewer ads. That's that's basically it. You're reducing your firepower. I think it's I think it's more likely it's more likely that what's happening is a, is is driven by what Alicia was pointing to, is that Republicans have burned through almost all the money that they've raised. Now they've had a record-setting pace, a record-setting cycle this year in terms of raising for Republican Senate candidates, but they've burned through almost all of that money 
as a national party. And they're just, they're low. They can't fulfill those ad buys. And so they're triaging a little bit. And look, then I think you bring in what Paul was just saying, which is, I mean, I don't see a scenario where they don't try to win these races, especially in Wisconsin, where you have an incumbent Republican senator that you're trying to protect in Ron Johnson. But they have to be realistic about where their best chances are. And you've got to triage. When you're out of money, you gotta you got to cut a little bit. So worth watching. I will say, though, that it is possible. It is possible that they're doing just a little bit of substitution here toward hybrid ads or some other kind of mechanism where the money is going to come from somewhere else. All of that said, and speaking of Trump and his fundraising and that whole dynamic, let's just close out this show with just a quick check-in on this week in Trump. There was an absolutely fascinating story back to NBC here reporting that Donald Trump's thinking based on insiders who are talking to him is that the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago a couple of weeks ago has lifted the pressure on him to announce his run for the presidency before the midterms. A, a few weeks ago, Republicans were really worried that Donald Trump was going to say, I'm running for president, in part to head off investigations because his sense was, look, if I'm an official candidate for president, then it's going to just look political if I'm being investigated. And there was this sense that maybe his hold on the nomination was slipping away. Now there's been a little bit of a rally round the flag effect on the Republican side, and he doesn't think he needs to do that anymore, much to the relief of people like Mitch McConnell. What do you make of that, Alicia Preston? Does that ring true to you? Look, I, I have a conspiracy theory. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> yes. Great. I think Donald Trump might wait till after the primaries because there is this shift we've been talking about of the political landscape that maybe this red wave won't happen. What if we don't get control of the Senate and the House? I think it's more likely we get control of the House. But what if we don't with everything going on? Is Donald Trump going to run for president with the possibility of a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate? What saved him from conviction in the Senate was that he didn't have the majority. They had the we had a majority, and so they weren't going to convict them. So you're thinking running for president, and whether you like Donald Trump or don't like Donald Trump, I think most can agree that the Democrats in elected office would love to make sure he's out of office and cannot ever hold it again. So you run, you become president, the House is going to impeach you if they're, if they're Democrats, the Senate's going to convict you if they're Democrats, and you're going to get out, and that does become your legacy. I think that should be taken into consideration. I would take it into consideration if I were him. I think Donald Trump is singing the song that he wants to be sung, but but the pincers, the pincers, he's beginning to feel the lobster claws of Merrick Garland and in Georgia and in New York. And maybe he's just saying, oh, okay, if I announce and they indict me, it's just so much trouble for me. I'll just wait a little bit and try to spin it spin 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 he's probably he's donald trump he can spin without getting dizzy but it's a very interesting thing that he's saying i'm not going to announce now i mean because he was gearing up for a big big announcement until he was caught with nuclear secrets in his bedroom i think this does this topic does bring the conversation full circle because we were talking earlier about the power of repetition in media coverage and how much that matters, kind of that earned media environment. And I, I think that's that's really what this is all about, is Democrats would just dearly love the focus to remain on Donald Trump. It's You could get 
us, or you may not be thrilled, but you could get that guy. And uh, that guy is, that guy is Donald Trump. He's pretty bad. I, 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 I do think that that's, that's kind of what's underlying all of this. And I think Donald Trump as insane as he is, he, he looks at Twitter. He, he reads news. He watches Fox. And as much as Fox has tried very hard to not pick up on the vibe shift and push back on any notion that Democrats have a fighting chance in this cycle, I think Trump is astute enough to realize, first of all, that he did get blamed for his election lying and his machinations after the 2020 election. He got blamed for the losses in Georgia in the runoffs that tilted the Senate toward Democrats. He does not want to be blamed for a weak Republican midterm. That would actually do more to hurt him than perhaps any other factor. It would do more to send Republicans searching for an alternative. And so he probably figures based on all of, and there has been a, a legitimate kind of rallying around, around Trump in the last couple of weeks, he probably figures he's good for now. He's good for the next 77 days. He doesn't need to try to crowd out any of his rivals. And he gets the upside of if things don't turn out as well as they should for Republicans on election day, then it won't all get pinned on why did Donald Trump announce before election day? I mean, I, I think that's all possible. And then again, I'm still in the camp and I will say it again because my mind has not changed. I don't think he's running. I okay, Paul. I, I is don't Donald think he, Trump going to run for president? I don't. I don't think he's running because he's going to be indicted. So, I mean, if you want to run for president as an indicted felon who has tried to spill the nation's nuclear secrets, maybe to the Saudis for money, and is at least shown to be any one of the felonies that he may be charged with would prevent him from holding office. Yeah, even the basic felony of of taking taking the documents that yeah, putting them in the wrong place, which is only a three year felony. He's not I, I don't think he's going to end up running. I, I think he's going to end up running. I don't think he's going to end up indicted, but it's not great that he just took the fifth 448 times. And on that note, we're going to have to wrap it up for Paul and Alicia. I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time.